Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Please come on by and check out our stuff. I very rarely say this, but I actually really like the Wednesday G file this week. So if you um, aren't a member, you can't see it unless you can convince somebody to send it to you, to forward it to you, because I don't think we can um, bring it out from behind the members only wall. We don't like to call it that other word. Um, uh, two weeks in a row. So uh, check it out. It's got. Cuomo bashing, Clinton bashing, Nietzschean resentment, and um, and other good things in there. So with that, I'm very excited to have uh, a fan favorite. I believe this is his sixth or seventh appearance on here. And um, my former colleague, who uh, I was talking to yesterday on the phone about something completely different and hung up. And then I was like, you know, I should have him back on. So I, call, I texted him back and asked him to come back on. None other than... Um, uh, favorite roundhead Florida man, uh, Charlie Cook. Welcome back to the Remnant. Ah, thanks for having me. So, um, uh, we're going to get to like what I, I announced on Twitter uh, yesterday that you're going to be on. Lots of questions came in, most having to do with Ron DeSantis, but a few others. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But speaking of Twitter, I was just on getting into a a robust conversation. It wasn't an it wasn't ugly in any way, which is rare for Twitter, um, about what TV shows had the best theme music. Now, I know you're a huge music guy. I don't know if you were ever a huge TV guy. And since you grew up over in that place where a uh, British guy comes from, uh, for all I know, the only TV music that you actually like is the theme song from Benny Hill. But... Um, I'm wondering, do you have an opinion on this? It doesn't have to be the lyrics or the song. Like it's, it's, we're talking about sim- simply in terms of musicality. Um, w- do you have an opinion on what the best TV like theme songs were or theme music was? Now, does it have to be connected specifically to the TV show, or could it be a song that was then used as the theme? Interesting, interesting question. Um, do uh, you mean like the Hawaii Five-O song was? A- well, I, I mean, for example, the Sopranos theme song was not written for the Sopranos. It was used by the Sopranos. I see. I see. I think we're going to have to exclude that for the most part. I mean, we can make special allowances, but if it's just like a great song that someone co-opted, I, I don't know that that's really the point. I'm thinking like Barney Miller, um, which has one of the best bass lines ever. Um, I think for... For nailing what they were going for, you have to give props to Twilight Zone. Oh, that, that would be up there. Yeah. Um, 
And I, you know, I know the Hawaii, the reason I brought up Hawaii Five-0 is I think it, it, it's way up there, but it's also, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was a tune first that they used for Hawaii Five-0, but I, I would give an allowance for that. But do you have uh, any other thoughts on this? Well, one absolutely great theme tune, although I'm not that big a fan of the show. I'm not opposed That's to fine. it, but it was a big, big fixture uh, in Britain in my childhood. It's the theme from Doctor Who. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, Doctor Who has a theme tune that was developed in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop by a genius woman called Delia Derbyshire, who is an English producer and gadget guru who has the worst teeth anyone has probably ever had. Uh, and you're saying this as an Englishman about no, another... she was English. <laughs> she, she, she fits the stereotype, uh, but was also ahead of her time. And it was actually... That sound is a piece of string that was recorded and then manipulated. Huh. Um, and it really, it really is evocative. The most evocative for me is the theme tune for Match of the Day. And Match of the Day is the, or was, the BBC's roundup of the day's soccer action when huh. I was a kid. It has a very famous theme tune that goes back to, I think, the 1950s. Anyone in England will know this, this tune. And it was it just so so evocative for me because I used to stay up late on a Saturday night and watch it with my dad. And so the second this came on, you would think, oh yeah, now we get to watch all all the goals. And and unlike now where you can watch almost every game on TV, especially if you're in America because there's no blackouts, mm. the the amount of television on football when I was say ten was actually quite small. So you'd have to wait until right. the evening to see the goals. And so it was. A, very exciting. I don't know if it's an objectively brilliant piece of music, but it's certainly important to me. So it's funny you say this because, like, um, in like I want to say ninth grade, we watched in some class Cool Hand Luke, mm. which um, I think is a great movie. There's lots of stuff going on in it, and um, the scene where Paul Newman figures out that they can blow off the rest of the day if they do their road work really fast and so they they lay the tar in the road really really quickly they play this 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 sort of revved up great music and the entire class burst into laughter because it was also the theme music for the channel seven local news and no one i mean i'm sure i mean like it was not intended obviously cool and luke probably came out 20 years before our local news had that music, but they used the same music and it was just, it kind of completely took you out of the thing. Um, it's interesting how you can ruin music like that. Cause I think home Depot uses a Credence Clearwater revival song. Yeah. And every time I hear it now, I just see, you know, labor day sale. And of course that's not the original meaning of it at all, but they had such a bad record contract that essentially anyone who wanted to license their music could do it quite cheaply and that by the way is why every single vietnam movie has credence clearwater revival in it because it didn't cost too much to use oh that's interesting it's like um uh poor william tells overture right i mean mm -hmm. completely ruined by 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 uh lone ranger although i still love the music i just can't associate it with anything other than the lone ranger right um the uh i remember i think it was in was, i think it was in return of the jedi where they had this alien who was uh, not Lando Calrissian, but some other alien who spoke gibberish, who was like piloting, helping pilot or co-pilot the Millennium Falcon or something like that. 
and Lucasfilm had used sort of chipmunk, like, you know, how they speed up the chipmunks uh, to like, you know, higher RPM to make them sound funny. They had basically taken like Swahili or something like that and sped it up. And so when you have these really dramatic scenes where they're trying to, you know, destroy the Death Star again or whatever it is. And, you know, Chewbacca lets out his roar and, and then this alien just, and in Swahili, people fell out of their chairs laughing in, in Africa, parts of Africa, they fell out of their chairs laughing because it was just him saying random words like bite the tree or, you know, <laughs> you know like this bookshelf is making me thirsty or whatever. You know? <laughs> all right. Um, with that, all that out of the way. Um, so you are of, I think it's fair to say of people I take seriously. Um, you are, I would say, Ron DeSantis's best and most well-known defender. And I think you've, you've changed my mind on quite a few things about DeSantis over the last year. Um, I'm still not as enamored with him as, as you are, but I also don't live in Florida. Um, and, uh, and I, I tend to be, we can, we can talk about this if you want. I tend to be, well, I, I, I care less about the media being mean to him than I think you do. But, um, uh, what is your current take on DeSantis's place in the COVID wars and what's going on in Florida in general? All right. Well, let's start by zooming out to 30,000 feet and saying my approach to this is that unless somebody is a clear threat to the American order or is likely to act illegally or is just such um, an immoral figure that you couldn't possibly have them as your governor or your president or senator or what you will, then my, my approach to politics is you should vote for or back the person who you have most in common with, right? Mm -hmm. so, so when it comes to Ron DeSantis, it's not that I think that Ron DeSantis is the greatest man who has ever lived or that I'm especially invested in him but it is that I like most of the things he, he's done. We could talk about the things I don't. And that compared to the alternative, which was Andrew Gillum, and next year will be Charlie Crystal and Nikki Freed, I'm obviously in favor of his remaining as governor of, of Florida. Um, you know, and, and I mention that because I, I think there is, um, and I think Trump made this worse, I think there is a tendency that is in a sense the opposite of the bad tendency to hero worship to say, well, how can you possibly have voted for that guy when he has done insert problem here? Mm -hmm. Well, because <laughs> I don't get my own way all the time. And unless you know a politician says I'm against the first amendment, in which case I could not lend that person my vote. Right. Then I, I'm, I'm going to vote for DeSantis. So, I mean, I, I did and, and I will next year. Um, that said, you know, I, I think DeSantis has a, a good but mixed record. Uh, on balance, I think he's done a, an excellent job in Florida. And I think he's done a, a good job with COVID. We believe, I think I can say this of you too, that politics is about trade-offs. Mm -hmm. There's no utopia. 
And you have here a state that is the third most populous in the union, that has a disproportionate number of old people in it, and that nevertheless is 26th in deaths out of 50, and 42nd as of yesterday in deaths among senior citizens out of 50, and that hasn't destroyed its economy, uh, that it is in fairly good shape, and that has managed to trade off mitigation against COVID with liberty and prosperity. And there's no perfect way of doing it, but I think DeSantis has got it right, and I think he's been misunderstood in getting it right. There is this really strange view of the guy, and a Florida in general, summed up in this hashtag DeathSantis, that he's indifferent to COVID or that he is not interested in science. But actually, it's just not true. And Bill Maher, of all people, pointed out he's voraciously interested in reading scientific literature. He might not come to the same conclusions that others do, but that's fine. And from the beginning, this has led to what I consider to be a mixed approach. I mean, in the early days, there were some statewide mandates. There were some statewide orders. There were also um, points at which the state government of Florida left a host of questions to localities. There were changes in policy based on the available evidence. For example, the bars reopened. It was clearly a problem. People were congregating in them, especially younger people, and spreading COVID. So they were closed again. And with the vaccine, he took a different approach than other states. He said, no, we're we're going to focus first on the upper age groups. And he was criticized for that. Um, He has, and we should go into this in more detail, He's taken the view that the state government, which is in charge of education in Florida, of course, because all the counties, school boards, and schools are the creation of the state government in Florida, will put the decision on masking at the parent level rather than at the school board level or the state level. I think that's right. I'm absolutely open to the idea that it's not, and many extremely intelligent, well-read people that I know think it's wrong, and that's fine. We, We can debate it. What I don't get about it is the idea that Florida has been sort of uniquely damaged by COVID or that its government has been uniquely irresponsible. I just don't think that that's true at all. I think its record is a good one. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of people who don't follow politics too closely are of this view is that the focus on Florida has been strange. We are at the moment in what seems to be a seasonal peak. I don't know what's going to happen next, but if you look at the the trends here, and Scott Gottlieb seems to agree with me for what it's worth, it does look like it's beginning to decline in the way that it did in Britain, in the way that it did in India. It seems possible also that in a month, Florida will actually not be a hotbed of COVID or the Delta variant, and somewhere else will, maybe New York, maybe California. And when that's the case, the coverage is going to be different. And I don't say that in order to criticize Florida, uh, sorry, criticize New York or California. And, and, and if anyone goes back and listens to what I've said for the last 18 months or reads what I've written, I've actually never done that with the exception of Cuomo's nursing homes decision and the cover up. Mm-hmm. Because I just don't think this is a partisan question. I don't think it's good for America that we immediately lined up into tribes. 
Um, but if I've been defensive of Florida, it's because I think Florida's done a good job. I think the people in Florida have done the best job that they can. And I think that in many important ways, their decisions have been borne out. And you know, this is politics. Their decisions have lined up with my risk liberty calculus. Um, so th- that's where I am on this. And um, yeah, if, 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 if I've sometimes seen defensive, it's because I don't understand why this state has been singled out. Um, well, look, I mean, just for the record, I'm with Bugs Bunny that we should have just saw off the state of Florida and let it float out into the Atlantic. So um, that could be part of it. Let's, um, uh, uh, you didn't grow up watching Looney Tunes, so you don't, you know. Oh, I do know that because people send me that gif on Twitter every week. Oh, good. Okay. Um, The the reason why Bugs Bunny was doing that was that there wasn't enough of a bounty put out on rabbits and he took offense it was like uh, bears got a hundred dollars, you know, whatever got, you know, $50 and rabbits were like $5 or $1. And so he was determined to up the stakes by being the biggest threat to America he could. And so one of the things he did is he saw it off Florida. Anyway, um, at least that's what my memory banks have. Let's start with the, the, the bit about the sort of anti-subsidiarity position of DeSantis, right? Which, which you say you're in favor of, but you're open to counter things. So what is your case for it? Because it seems to me that if, that, that your argument that, let's put it this way, the argument for DeSantis at the national level is the federalist argument, is that he's taking his approach, it's the right thing for Florida and his judgment and blah, 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 blah. Um, why doesn't that argument scale down so that a county executive or mayor or school superintendent can't, why can't they make the best choices they think for their community or their institutions? Why does he have to bigfoot the way you don't like bigfooting at the national level? Why does he, why is it okay for him to bigfoot at the state level like that? Well, I don't think that those arguments mirror one another. The federal government is a has a charter of enumerated powers. It is there to fulfill certain national roles and to mediate disputes between the states. Now, let's for a moment leave aside whether that has been eroded over time, which of course it has. If you look at the original intention, the people acting through the states created another level, a separate level, a discrete level of government that did not enjoy the police powers that the states enjoy, and that did not alter the police powers that the states enjoy, except in certain areas to which the states had acquiesced. Local communities are the creation of the states, at the government level, I mean, not not Mm -hmm. privately. So what you have is a fundamental building block in the United States, note the name, uh, of the states which pre-existed and created alongside we the people the federal government and that created all of the subsidiary governments within them the, the counties are creations of the state the school boards are the creations of the state the 
city governments are the creations of the state. If they want to, tomorrow, the states can wipe them all away, can change the lines, can abolish the school boards. They can preempt all the laws. The federal government can't do that to the states. It doesn't have the power. It's not the equivalent. It's not a national government with regional departments that it can move around at will. Now, I am, of course, a localist. And I don't think it is a good idea on every question for the states to preempt local communities or to make decisions for local communities. And so in many areas, I think it's imperative that the state government says, hey, we have a diverse population, geography, politics, economic setup. let's, Let's live and let live a little. Let's leave some room. But of course, that doesn't work in every scenario. So it doesn't make a great deal of sense for a state to have 19 different concealed carry rules per county. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make a great deal of sense for a state to have different income tax rules by county. You you, you don't tend to see that. Whereas at the national level, of course, there are 50 different income tax levels set by each state. So, There's the structural part of the answer, is that they're not equivalent. On the question of DeSantis supposedly riding roughshod over local communities, I just don't buy that characterization. As far as I see it, there are three options that the state government has. One, uh, it can set a policy for every school. You all have to mandate masks, or none of you can. Uh, mandate masks. Two, it can leave that question up to the school boards. Three, it can leave that question up to the parents. And what Ron DeSantis did not do is say every child in Florida has to wear a mask. Nor did he say no children in Florida are permitted to wear masks. That would have been an imperial decision, if you like, at the state level. He would have had every right to, to make it, given the underlying statutes, but he didn't. Instead, He said, I am going to grant this power to one of the lower level units. And the two options there were the school boards or the individual. I don't think it's unconservative to choose the individual. I think it is arguably wrong. Uh, As I say, I know very smart, well-intentioned people who think this should be at the level of the school boards. But I think it's really odd to say that it's sort of intrusive or taking away power from parents by refusing to give it to a government entity, which is the school board. It's reasonable to do it, but it's no more or less taking away the power than it is by taking it away from the school board and giving it to parents. So really the question, especially if you're a conservative, is which conservative value here wins out? Is it families and individuals, parents' rights, or is it communities counties, school boards. There are really good cases in favor of both. I just happen to think when it comes to masking children, for which there is pretty much no evidence, that the individual approach is a better one. I I don't think this is imperative. I don't think that the case for a more um, cohesive policy holds water. And if I did, if I thought that we were really looking here at the potential 
for children to die en masse and spread COVID en masse, I think I'd actually be in favor of the state government saying these are the rules while you're in Florida. Because any argument that can be made against parents deciding, oh, no, we have to have the same policy in our county can also be made at the state level. And, you know, Theoretically, it could be made at the national level too, but by design, for very good reason and irrespective, it's the law, the federal government doesn't have that power. Yeah, so at first I was thinking that you were dodging the question, but then you answered the question because the the first part of your answer was about what the power of the governor is in the state and he has the sovereign right to be the Lord protector of the state of Florida and all these kinds of things. And that all may well be true. I mean, I take it, take it as a given that you're right about that um uh but that's not that's not responsive to the question of subsidiarity right i mean no. subsidiarity is a principle that is that applies equally well as an argument outside of the legalistic mechanisms and forms of 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 of, of a state or a polity of any size right so but then you answer the, answer the question i think look i i i tend to think you're right, or at least that's my suspicion. I also tend not to get worked up about this one way or the other about Florida because I'm sort of with you on this in that I find that the whole argument about DeSantis is so shot through with, and and with Florida and COVID and all these other things generally, it's so shot through with uh, culture war, you know, projection stuff that I find it kind of exhausting. Um, and that said, I mean, I I think one of the reasons why DeSantis gets the criticism that he gets is that he leans into that for his own political purposes. Right. And, um, you know, he sells that, that, that beer cozy cozy thing on his website that says, how the hell am I supposed to drink a beer if I've got a mask on? I mean, he is doing a little sort of Yasser Arafat kind of speaking one language to one audience and doing boob bait to another audience. And he likes, I mean, he likes to trigger the elite mainstream media. It's good for him in the same way that like, it's good for Prager university to be, you know, banned from Twitter for 24 hours. They raise an enormous amount of money off of these things. And so my own general approach to people like DeSantis um, is he knows what he's doing. <laughs> and so he's trying to get people to some extent to treat him unfairly in the national media. And then, so I'm not going to get super pissed off when the national media does exactly what falls into the exact trap that DeSantis sets. Um, that's I think it. your description is correct, but the causation is the other way around. Okay, explain that. I think he's reacting. There's no doubt he has a political incentive. You won't hear any argument from me on that. But it seems to me that he is primarily responding to aggression aimed at him and the state of Florida. And I don't have a particular problem with that. And again, that's not to say I agree with everything he says. And I certainly don't agree with everything he does. And we should talk once we've addressed this point about where he's interfered with private institutions Mm -hmm. from the state level, which I oppose. But 
I don't think there is anything wrong with politicians pushing back when they're unfairly maligned. And perhaps this is because I'm sitting in Florida, but Florida has for a long time been unfairly maligned. And we've seen not only Florida being unfairly maligned, but other people being preposterously propped up purely so they can be used as a contrast with those Floridians, which was the line last year. Most obviously, Andrew Cuomo, the disgraced governor of New York, uh, who is not only disgraced for what he allegedly um, did to all of those women, but for his nursing home debacle, which we haven't seen in Florida. I mean, if you look at what has happened in the last year and a half, there's been this absolutely bizarre focus on Florida, which has done pretty well. And DeSantis has been accused of all sorts of things that he hasn't done. Rebecca Jones is the most obvious and unhinged example. But so is the broader lie that Florida's been fudging its numbers. Uh, the CDC, I don't think it did it maliciously, but didn't help this week by screwing up Florida's numbers, which it had to apologize for and retract. And 60 Minutes even came down here, spent three months, and then advanced a ridiculous conspiracy theory about the involvement of the supermarket chain Publix in distributing the vaccine. And why on earth would Florida use Publix to distribute <laughs> the vaccine? It's not uh, that it's the most popular supermarket chain in the state. It's not that it has you know 180 pharmacies. It's not that it's the most trusted brand in the state that elderly people are used to going there. No, it must have been because they gave Ron DeSantis you know, 50, I can't remember, $100,000 for his re-election campaign, which, by the way, they always do. Right. For every, and did for Nikki Freed as well. Sure. Who is the agriculture commissioner. Um, I think that, yeah, he is more belligerent than some politicians are, but I think it is mostly responsive. I don't think that he woke up one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to stick it in the media's eye. And then they said, oh, well, we'll get back at you. I, I think it's primarily the other way around. Oh, I... I, I I'm not trying to say that by any stretch of the imagination that like um, the causality only goes one direction. But if you look at the, I mean, you started out talking about talk, looking at things from 30,000 feet, just look at the Republican party today. And this is, this is the primary mode of political communication at this point. You know, you look at the idiotic things that JD Vance and Josh Hawley tweet all day. They are trolling people. They want to be. They 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 want that blowback. They want to be uh, misunderstood to a certain extent, so that they, they then play the martyr. And um, I just, I, I, given how DeSantis, you know, which you've condemned in the past, r got the nomination in the first place by his just grotesque, obsequious sycophancy to Trump and Trumpism, uh, the idea that he is not savvy enough and politically sophisticated enough to be part of that whole thing, to be, to be playing those games too, I just don't think is right. But look, you, you pay more attention to it than I do. Uh, and I, I'm the last person who wouldn't concede that the media's treatment of him has been absurd. I mean, the, the 60 minutes thing, was so ludicrous. You know, and there, there's this thing that you get like with Jane Mayer types um, where they describe objective reality in this way to make it sound sinister. You know, where they say, 
Of course, the leading trucking industry would use our taxpayer-funded highways to deliver their private goods and services, you know? And that, there is this, this bubble that people, you know, that the mainstream media lives in where they, they reach the conclusion first, knowingly or unknowingly, and then they just, the, the, they pick up the breadcrumbs that take them to the destination they were always planning on going to. I agree with that entirely. Um, but like, I mean, just, you know, again, I don't follow the Florida stuff super closely and we don't want to dwell on it too much, but like, what is your explanation for why the hospitals are groaning from the strain of COVID right now? What is your explanation for like these reports? I mean, I, I remember Dave Bonson made on this podcast and elsewhere the point that in the first or second wave of COVID, a lot of the stuff about ICU beds running out was a bit of sleight of hand because all hospitals needed to do is convert a lot of their other beds into ICU beds if they needed to. And so the, the, the running out of ICU beds was a bit of a statistical artifice rather than a, a real reality. I don't know what the case is in Florida. I'm not close to it, but the, it, it, the actual stories from the hospitals can't be entirely fictional or contrived. No, no, of course not. So not. Florida's having a rough bout. Is it just their turn? Is it just bad luck? I mean, what, what is your theory about it? Florida's certainly having a, a rough turn, and, and it is bad in many of the hospitals. It, it's not bad in the sense that they're collapsing or that they aren't able to process patients with emergencies. And it's also, and this is really important generally to note, it's also not the case that lots of people are dying, mm -hmm. which last year they were. But it is the case that there has been a, a big spike in cases with this Delta variant, and it has been particularly bad in Florida. Why do I think that is? I think that's partly because it's our turn. Yeah, I mean, it's about the same time as it was last time around. It does seem to be declining. Uh, people are outside here and then in air conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's funny. But, Florida in the summer is very much like Fairbanks in the winter. You just can't be outside very much because it's grotesque. Right. I mean, so people just are in air conditioning and air conditioning is a super spreader in many ways. Right. Yeah. I, what, what I can't see is any obvious tight link between the policies of a given state and their susceptibility to this Delta variant. Yeah. I mean, one of the myths about DeSantis is that he's been weak on the vaccines. Just not true. He's been strongly anti-lockdown. He's been disparaging towards masks. But on the vaccine, right from the beginning, he's been running around the state encouraging people to get it. And although Florida isn't better than the average in vaccine uptake, it's not worse either. It's about right in the middle. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we're under-vaccinated. It's not that we have decided to, to give up fighting it. It, it. It's a good question. And really, the, the only criticism one can level that I think is coherent is now that Florida is in the middle of, or I think toward the end of this spike, it should be more panicked. Mm -hmm. But I think one has to explain what one means. And I haven't yet read a convincing argument. Does that mean another lockdown? Does that mean mask mandates? I, I, as I say, I, you know, I'm just not seeing the 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 link. 
I think what is upsetting people is almost superstitious. It's that you have a governor who seems calm about this and doesn't want to go back to draconian policies while the state is in a difficult place and people assume one has caused the other. But I, I, you know, I just don't see the evidence for it. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it feels a little bit... Do you remember, were you here when the... Um... Um, when British, the British petroleum spill. Yeah, you were here. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, there was a weird bit of panic of among, so I remember Frank Rich and a lot of the New York Times editorial page types that Obama was too calm. And the video of just that oil spilling out from the seafloor where people didn't actually understand the massive scale of the ocean and that it really wasn't as, I mean, it was bad, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't, it wasn't the environmental catastrophe that people were saying it was. And, um, but there was just something about that triggered people's brain, sort of the lizard brain response. And what they wanted from Obama was, more emoting, more, you know, just urgent rhetorical urgency. And it was freaking them out that he was calm. And I think we've seen a lot of that kind of thing during the pandemic where, um, you know, I can't think of a politician who has actually landed a tone that was pleasing to everybody on this in that, you know, cause there's some people who are, um, who want more panicking. And there are some people who think there should be zero urgency whatsoever. And it's just, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard needle to thread, I guess. Well, I think the best thing about Barack Obama was how calm he was. I like that. Um, I'm trying to think the best thing about Barack Obama. It was up there. I mean, I, I, I my problem with, 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 with the calmness about it was that it was very hard to disentangle from that, tendency of his to explain to people that he had he understood your self-interest better than you did um which was a very grating annoying thing I oh I, I didn't like Barack Obama at all <laughs> you know? but but there were certain but he was calm about features it. <laughs> of Obama that I think were desirable in a president and calm mm -hmm. is one of them no and 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 you know I'm actually someone who thinks like like personal decorum and good manners and mm, and and all that kind of stuff matters and um and that contrasts with certain other presidents. Um so all right, let's move on from all of this. Um I think if there was one thing that sort of defined your which I always think is kind of funny given where you were raised, that defines your political outlook is um essentially anti-monarchism or you know anti-arbitrary power you're a rule of law guy um and um you know last week we had the president of the united states i would argue for the, the fourth president in a row um to in one way or another who knowingly violated the constitution and and thought it was just fine. In this case, it was with the uh, elect with the uh, eviction moratorium. Um, 
since we're going to be in violent in, in violent agreement on the the craptacularness of presidents doing this um i guess the question is is it just baked into the cake at this point that people people don't care enough about the constitution and care about the 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 I mean, the right procedural mechanisms with of, of how our government is supposed to be functioned, including the people in our government. You know, I mean, when Congress was fighting with the president about who should have power that they didn't want, which was not what the founding fathers envisioned. Mm-hmm. And if and if that's been the case for a long time now, is it just something that we're going to have to make peace with and figure out how to frame arguments differently? Because saying that's not allowed is it just doesn't work on a lot of people. Well, I shall never make peace with it. And I think that there are people who can be convinced by it. For example, when DACA was first announced, the polling on whether it was a good idea per se and the polling on whether the president should do it were much closer than they were after six months of relentless messaging. You know, by by the the first year uh, of its being in place, I believe it went down to sort of 42 approve, 58 disapprove of Obama's having done what he did without Congress. But I don't think that happened in a vacuum. I, I think that happened because Republicans in Congress, certainly, but others said, no, no, no. And lawsuits help. I think people there's an imprimatur that, that is conferred by courts. If you can say, well, the court said this is illegal, then mm-hmm. Americans at that point perk up more than if you say, clearly, given the text of the Constitution, this is illegal, and the president has a responsibility to follow that irrespective of a court order. So no, I, I don't think so. I, I think it's going to be an uphill climb, though, because the parties still switch places relatively often. And as such, there's no institutional imperative for one of them to say, let's change this. Because they want to use a lot of the powers that they complain about when they're out of power, when they get into power. Uh, There's a great deal of hypocrisy here. Now, if a party happens to be out of power for quite a long time, that might change. And the example I always give is, is with Franklin Roosevelt. When the Republicans finally won some power back in the 1940s. They'd been out of Congress and the White House by that point, 15, 16 years. When they finally won some power back, they actually took quite a lot of time working out how to limit executive power. Not entirely successfully, but they did make some big changes. One of the things they did was to push through the 22nd Amendment so that we couldn't have a president who won four elections ever again. Another thing they did was uh, write the Administrative Procedure Act, which put some limits on the caprice of the executive branch and subjected regulations to a process. Now, I would much prefer that that Congress had passed a constitutional amendment, essentially outlawing the administrative state. But that that wasn't going to happen. They did what they could do. This isn't going to happen, Jonah, because Republicans don't actually care about this enough. But if they did, or if they found themselves out of the White House for long enough, the first thing they should do when they get back into a position 
of authority is review every single law in the United States that contains broad delegations of power to the executive. Anything that says the secretary shall or in his judgment or the president can. Because there are a lot of them. When Trump was president, people focused on hot-button issues. They focused on immigration. I focused on his stealing money to pay for his border wall. When Obama was president, again, we focused on immigration. Now Joe Biden is ordering eviction moratoriums and proposing that he has the power to order mask mandates. These are all political questions people care about. But one of the strangest things of the Trump years, something that would have made James Madison cock his head and say, I don't understand, was that the president of the United States could unilaterally set tariff rates. Mm-hmm. And tariffs are essentially taxes. Yeah. The idea that this would uh, be acceptable in 1791, <laughs> per the plain text of the Constitution, is just preposterous. It, it is explicitly in the text of the Constitution that Congress gets to set tariffs. But for some reason, we've let that go. I think if Congress tried to delegate control over tax rates to the executive branch, there would be an, an uproar. Maybe I'm wrong. But there wasn't. And so you got all of these articles about whether it was a good idea, what it would do to supply chains with China, how this would play in Michigan. And very few people said, wait a minute. Why is it? Well, if you look at the statutes, they do actually delegate power in this area to the executive. Why? Because Congress in the New Deal and the Second World War during the Cold War was really worried about an emergency. And so the federal code is absolutely chock with laws that say, yeah, if we have an emergency or if the president thinks it's really important for these reasons, he can basically do what he wants. And we have them in every area. And I think that it's important for us to get rid of as many of those as we can. And also to appoint Supreme Court justices who are willing to superintend the executive branch when it exceeds statutory authority. Neither of those is going to be easy. Um, but it's not something I, I will give up on because I actually see the, the tendency toward caprice as the hallmark of tyranny. Mm-hmm. It's not just unifying power, as James Madison thought. It, it's caprice, really, that is tyranny. It's not an original thought, but but it's also something that isn't thought too much. Yeah, I mean, Locke politics. and Burke would call it arbitrary power, right? It's just right. the idea to use power as you see fit, regardless of what the rules are, you know? And, and the whole point is, is that that's what power was defined as until about 350 years ago. And then we decided to, instead of, you know, have the rule of rulers, we decided to have the rule of rules. And, and my, you know, this is part of the point of suicide of the West is that that's not how our brains are wired. It's an unnatural way to live. And we all have to one extent or another in our lizard brains, this desire to have a big man or a chieftain telling us what to do. And some of us are aware of it and and then take account for it, you know, and, and have set up sort of intellectual antibodies against it. But if you let people, if you let human nature take its course, you do not get constitutionalism, you get monarchism or some version of it and, or bossism of some kind. And uh, it just, it feels to me like that is where the vast bulk of 
political partisans are these days is against the rule of rules and in in favor of our side ruling and that's worrisome to me yeah and i think one of the reasons for it is an inability to regard illegitimate power used in pursuit of an ostensibly good aim right as illegitimate power if you look back at the american revolution it really was just not in line with other revolutions and its conception of tyranny was not really in line with what we have come to understand that word to mean and in fact you will get people who say the american revolution was frivolous because the british were entirely within their rights to ask americans to pay for the french and indian wars which had been costly and which they benefited from but the point is if you believe what the founders believed and if you believe that you are heir to a system which in that case was the glorious revolution it doesn't really matter <laughs> what the substantive arguments are the question is structure and process and so when james madison says here's what tyranny is it's one guy having judicial legislative and executive power what we think instinctively is no tyranny's hitler mm-hmm. tyranny is mao tyranny is stalin and of course that's true as well And so if you say, this is a real problem, guys, because this isn't how we're set up, people go to, well, is he herding Jews into camps? Is he killing people without a trial? Is he suppressing free speech? And all of that is obviously tyranny too, and it's a huge problem too, and it's more of a problem in many ways. But that doesn't mean that the power that's being exercised is legitimate or that and of course, this is a slippery slope argument, which I have no problem with, that over time, that erosion won't lead to more sinister outcomes. I think that's our core problem, because what we're actually arguing about is all mostly benign. I mean, yeah, an eviction moratorium is a problem. I have many, many issues with it. Um, But it's not the same as the gulag. No, I know. So it's hard to make the case. This is one of the problems with rhetorical excess, is that over time, maximums become minimums. And so, like, on any rational, moral, intellectually serious scale, Hitler is way at the end of a broad spectrum of badness, right? I mean, and, and, and he should define, or Stalin, or Mao, too, but, you know, they should define the outer boundaries of what we define as tyranny. They shouldn't define the minimum threshold <laughs> and you have people who will argue in effect you know uh that that well they're not as bad as hitler so it's not tyranny well, it was like that's a that's that's a real high bar you're asking me to cross here is you're like saying until they start rounding up the jews i shouldn't be offended by anything <laughs> and i was like i'd like to set my sights a little lower about where i could be offended um but uh, so I mean I, I agree with you. I think there is. I mean, this is one of my obsessions. Is I think you know one of the th- one of the places where my contributions have made things worse was I was one of the guys who helped popularize Saul Alinsky as a uh, as a figure to pay attention to, and it was because of Hillary and Obama. They had these links to him and all this kind of stuff. But I hailed him as I, I brought attention to him as a bad guy, right? He was this guy who says the ends justify the means. That's what you know ends are all about, and all this kind of stuff kind of dedicated rules for radicals to satan 
I didn't think like I had to do a lot of work <laughs> um, to explain <laughs> that he was a bad guy. And then you had over the last 15 years, a bunch of people on the right, um, including, you know, guys used to write for NR when I was there, you know, what David Kahane is, was his nom de plume, nom de jackass, which was, you know, saying, no, 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 we need to have our own rules for radicals. We need to like, you know, he wrote a whole book called Rules for Radical Conservatives or something like that. And you look at a lot of the fever swampier people on the right now, Kurt Schlichter and these kinds of people, and whether they're trolling or not, their basic arguments are uh, ride roughshod over all the rules, ends justify the means, we're right, and we should use power by any means necessary to attain our goals. And um, that's worrisome to me in part because the whole point of conservatism to a certain extent, is we're supposed to be the sticks in the mud, right? We're the ones who are supposed to be working the brake pedal, you know, on the ship of state. And if it's a bipartisan race to see who can press harder on the gas pedal, that's a real problem. And, um, and so I do see a creeping trend towards authoritarianism on the right these days that I didn't see before. And I see a creeping trend towards authoritarianism on the left that I've seen for 20 years. My problem, is, what dismays me is that it's, 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 it's the spirit of if we can't beat them, join them, that mm -hmm. bums me out more than anything else. I mean, where do you come I down agree. on this hungry stuff? I mean, like, like, do you think it's, and, and all praise and honor to Michael Brennan Doherty, who has intelligent and, 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 and nuanced things to say about Hungary, and our friend John O'Sullivan, who's over there, you know, stipulated all that. When all of a sudden did conservatives start saying, start playing the, why, why should we be turning Hungary into Cuba of the right? Like this, you know, here's where they're really doing it right. Um, we spent most of my career saying, I don't give a rat's ass how they do it in Scandinavia. And by the way, you don't even understand what they're doing in Scandinavia in the first place. Um, you know, the big theme in NR for 30 years was standing athwart the sort of attempt to Europeanize American politics. And now all of a sudden the new hotness is this, you know, small landlocked country with this guy who at least has a reputation for authoritarianism as, as the lantern, the show was the way out. If you're not talking about, you know, a dead Portuguese, Portuguese dictator, you know, who's another one of these guys we're hearing is the, the, you know, the, the Salazar option as the American greatness recently talked about it. Um, um, what the hell? In a sense, I'm the wrong person to ask about this because, as you know, I essentially believe America is providence and that all of the answers that we need lie in the Declaration, the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, and the thought over centuries that led to them. So, you know, I don't even view Britain, at least in its modern form, as especially instructive as to how we fix. America, I don't view Canada as being especially instructive. I don't view Australia as being especially instructive. I don't think those countries are tyrannies or you know, anything other than the nice places to live. But you know, I'm not even prepared to look at my country of birth as the as the model, let alone Hungary, about which I know very little other than you know, they suffered greatly at the hands of the Soviet Union. I think, though, what you're seeing is 
envy. I think you're seeing an envy that somewhere else, the people in charge of the government are doing the opposite of what the people in charge of the government are doing or are allowed to do in the United States. I think there are some people who have really bought in to this Flight 93 idea. This is on both sides. I hate it when people on the left taunt conservatives about Flight 93 Mm. because they sound exactly the same if they're talking about, say, minor voting changes in Florida or net neutrality. The Trump presidency, (laughs) net neutrality, whatever you will, the tax cuts. But that it is rife on the right. This idea that we are either lost or that we are about to be. And when you get into that mindset, and this is where ideas really do matter, you are giving yourself permission in some ways to not only think in a certain way, but ask for certain things. And I think that those people are looking around the world and saying, well, where is it different? Where do we have a guy who is using his power to do things that I like? And the answer they've hit on is is Orban. Substantively, I just don't know to what extent the criticisms are true. I do suspect that there's a little selective outrage. You know, for example, some of the criticisms of Orban that I read, I think, yeah, I'm really opposed to that too, but they also do that in France. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that doesn't make me in favor of it. Um, but I also just don't care. And, and if that makes me solipsistic or myopic or monomaniacal, then fine. But I am very focused on the United States. It's where I live. It's, it's what I think is the last great hope. I have no connections whatsoever to Hungary. And I don't think it has a great deal to teach us. Yeah, I mean, look, that, that's more or less my position. I, I'm very vexed by the obsession with it. But I actually think in reality, and one of the reasons I'm obsessed with the obsession with it is I think the whole conversation is so freaking stupid. Like, like, let's say, for example, that everything, you know, Orban and Hungary's biggest defenders their version of Orban is 100% true. And that all the stuff about creeping authoritarianism and fascism and anti-Semitism and corruption, all of that stuff are, you know, fake news. Fine. You know, like it is, it is exactly the sort of social conservative uh, utopia um, model state that they claim it is. Who gives a rat's ass? I know. I know. That's my view. Because like, I, just as a raw practical politics, are you going to say, okay, 330 million Americans, we are going to take a model that works on a landlocked um, East European country that has very little tradition of democracy and that no immigrants want to go to and that is not have a particularly good, particularly good economy and we're going to impose that on all of America? Is that going to make those policies easier to sell or harder to sell? I mean, I just like be it's it to me, it's very reminiscent. Uh, you know, Richard Rorty wrote that really interesting book called Achieving Our Country, where he makes a case for sort of liberal nationalism. Um, and obviously I had my disagreements with it, but part of his vent spleening 
was how stupid it was that in the in the Cold War and post Cold War era, basically since the 30s, the American left became so obsessed with arguing about Trotskyism and Leninism and 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 Bukharanism and all of these sort of foreign things that they turned their backs on the own, their own sort of progressive tradition of American liberalism and like and part of the stupidity of it was a simple practical politics thing is that if you actually want policies that you want to impose in the United States about generous welfare benefits or whatever, saying we're going to mimic the Soviet Union or Cuba, um, never mind you know, even Scandinavia, makes it harder to sell, not easier to sell. And yeah. if the social conservatives want these policies, these pro-natalist policies or all these, kind of, I'm happy to have the arguments. Some of them are probably good. Some of them are probably terrible. I don't know. But like saying Hungary lights the way is a guaranteed non-starter for actually persuading a majority of Americans to get anything done. So it's, it's sort of a Dungeons and Dragons club, right? And it's, 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 it's just sort of wheel spinning rhetorical BS. And, um, and at the same time, the fact that it appeals to so, but the, the fact that it appeals to so many people, um, I do find troubling because the whole point, again, about American conservatism is that we were pretty invested in the concept of American exceptionalism and we shouldn't care how other countries do things because we have a different culture, a different history. And even the founding fathers understood that you couldn't possibly scale up what, the, what works in a small country to a vast continental country like ours. You know, and it's, just, it's, it's an irrelevant conversation that I resent people making it relevant about. I couldn't have put it better myself. It's just not where my focus is. It's not where my focus is ever going to be. And as you say, insofar as it intersects with our politics, we already have the framework for these arguments. I mean, so I'm a classical liberal. I don't really like using the tax code to nudge behavior. So I'm not on board the child tax credit and all of the various deductions. I would much rather have a simple system. But very smart people that I know are Ramesh Panuru, Ross Douthat. They already are able to make arguments for the child tax right. credit without pointing to a country somewhere else. And we already have a tax credit and we already have deductions. So really the question is, do we want more of them or less of them? And what do we want them to look like? We don't need to fantasize about this other country um, that has kind of nothing in common with the United States beyond the fact that at one point, admirably, it was opposed to communism. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no huge beef against the Hungarian people. I mean, I, no, I, I, you know. I don't either. And I, and I come from a long tradition at, at, at national review of, of being something of a stand for the Austro Hungarian empire, um, <laughs> which was, you know, in many ways, a liberal empire. If Eric von Knut Ledin is to be believed. Um, I mean, you mentioned subsidiarity. I think this is another point that one of the implications of subsidiarity, or at least that I have always taken from it, is that you have many, many layers of the onion and you slowly move out through them. And as you move out through them, you care less in that I care more about my family than I do about my neighbors, but right. I care more about my town than I do my county and more about my county and so on. And I am a Floridian. I care a great deal about Florida, partly because I have control over it and I'm invested in it. And so, yes, I might say that's a stupid policy Michigan has, but I'm much less upset about that policy in Michigan than I would be in Florida because I don't live in Michigan. 
and above Florida. Obviously, there's the United States. And then there's the broader English-speaking world and the country I came from where my family lives. So I care about what happens there. And there's a certain point, though, at which you get so far out that I don't want any bad things to happen to those people. And yeah, if they're in dire straits, I would want to help them because I'm a human being. But I'm also just not going to think about it every day. Yeah. And I just don't think every day what happens in Hungary or Bangladesh uh, or in South Africa. It's just not within my orbit. Um, and I don't have time to think about that. And I don't think that that's somehow a rejection of, of, of humanism or, or liberalism. I think that's normal human behavior. And I, I actually think that when people start worrying so much about what is happening internally in a country they have no connection to at all, not even a common language or history, they kind of need to log off the internet. Yeah, I mean, isn't this sort of part of the problem with social media? I mean, there's that character, was it in Bleak House, who cares passionately about starving African children, but completely ignores her own children, right? Which yeah. is, And that kind of character, I think, is actually pretty common in American life. And someone who cares a lot about abstractions, but not about like tangible things in their own backyard or in their own home. Um, and I think social media kind of makes that worse, right? Because shoves how people are living wrong quote, with quotation marks around wrong um up in your face and makes it feel like they're your neighbors and um and makes very distant things feel very close by and i think that kind of scrambles people's brains in lots of ways that we haven't figured out how to how to deal with and it leads to irrational behavior i mean if you go back to say 2018 there were a lot of people in states that were being contested and were competitive in the midterms, sending their money out to Texas to try and defeat Ted Cruz, yeah. to Florida to try and defeat DeSantis and Rick Scott, and then talking about it. I mean, it's their money. They can do what they want. But that's a very strange development where you are not throwing as many resources as you can possibly marshal to influence things where you live. But you're waking up in the morning in a, a cold sweat because you don't like a politician who lives in another place. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's also this thing. I mean, we've talked about this before about how, you know, um, people were obsessed with how you were going to vote as if there was this deeply tied connection between how you're going to vote and what you believe to be true and what you're, whether you're willing to like lie or whatever, you know, and you, you have to support candidate x and that means saying whatever is to their benefit sort of like as really rudy giuliani has just admitted um under oath that he was doing and but there's this very strange thing where i'll have these arguments with people you know over twitter or over email who will very earnestly tell me that you know the flight 93 vision is correct we are on the verge of the apocalypse we're on the verge of civil war um, you know, this election matters so much that, you know, if, if our side loses, the only other choice is civil war and that you have to do everything you can and shame on you for, you know, not being more pro Trump or pro this or pro that I get all this kind of stuff from people, from people who live in like Wyoming. And it seems to me like if you really wanted to change the politics, you could move to someplace where your vote really mattered a lot. You know, I mean, like 
there are things shy of shooting your fellow Americans that you could do that would have an actual influence in the way that you want to have it. But instead, they want to send $25 to J.D. Vance or whoever and, and then go back to talking as if we were on the cusp of civil war, but not actually doing anything. And um, this mismatch between the apocalypticism that is running around on both sides and the actual personal responsibility or what we used to call self-government of just doing like bread and butter things to make your own community better is, is very weird to me. And again, I think that's part of the problem of nationalized politics. I think Tip O'Neill's all politics, it's local thing. It's kind of over. And, um, oh, totally, and it's, totally. it's sad to me because I think as bad as that was basically the worst things about that were a bunch of earmarks you know, um, at least past the civil rights era, you know, past, you know, the end of Jim Crow, all politics is local was, you know, basically machine politics, but it turns out earmarks you know. were a lot less expensive than nationalized politics. Exactly. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you take the return of earmarks in a heartbeat if it came with buying real entitlement reform? Like we would save it would be pennies on the dollar to give every congressman their own stadium or rec center or friggin' Olympic swimming pool in their town in exchange for doing something really, you know, serious about entitlement reform. It'd be, you know, well, of course I would, I'd take it for less than that. I'd take it for return of the stasis of the nineties. Yeah. All right. Um, what are you watching these days? Like anything you actually enjoy? Absolutely. We are on season four of this British show called Unforgotten. Hmm. Don't know it. Which is on PBS in the US, ITV in the UK. It's absolutely terrific. It's about a couple of detectives who get assigned to cases in which the body is 20, 30, 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And they have to find out what happened so it's like cold case uh, kind of thing yeah but the way it's done is is fascinating in that you you are introduced to all of these characters and slowly their lives are upended by these detectives coming in and asking them about something that happened 20 years ago oh. um so it's not it's not just a procedural but it, there's a cast of characters you slowly learn more about it's it's really british television at, at its finest uh, we also watched Mayor of Easttown on HBO, uh -huh. which I thought was was terrific. Um, My, I, I, I liked it, and the characters were so good, and the acting was so good that you could let some things wash over you. But if you had a, if you took a beat and thought about some of the things, there yeah. were some problems. The thing that really, one of the only things that completely jarred me and took me out of the flow was the girl talking to a professor at Berkeley after the enrollment deadline had passed and was so impressive on the phone in contradistinction to the, everything we've seen from this character who is not impressive in any way that this professor had the ability to bend all the rules and get her into Berkeley after the deadline. And at, I was in the middle of going through all the college stuff with my daughter. And like, it was just like, that doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't happen, you know, it wouldn't happen for Simone Biles. Never mind, like, this white girl from, from Pennsylvania. But anyway, go on. Anything else? 
Well, I have the luxury of not thinking deeply about television. I'm just not good at it. You know, I have a a musical mind and not a TV slash movie mind. And I, I find it quite frustrating, especially being married to my wife, who somehow within eight minutes of anything starting sort of says, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, how, how, how do you think it happened? And then she'll sort of explain the plot. She hasn't even seen yet. Yeah. Um, I do that with my wife. So I drive I, her crazy. Like, I'll be like, there'll be two characters driving. And I can tell from the camera angle that in the next 30 seconds, they're going to get sideswiped by a car. And um, and it's supposed to be a big surprise. <laughs> and it drives my <laughs> wife crazy. And I was like, yeah, wait for it. They're about to get sideswiped by a car. Like, And then they get hit by a car and she looks at me all pissed off. But anyway. Yeah, so I, I tend to let these things wash over me. One thing I did see, it's not a TV show, but I watched it finally, was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I just thought was magnificent. I heard you talking about that on um, the editors recently. I agree with you. It, it, the first time I watched it, I kind of thought it was meandering. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, actually, it's not meandering. Because you kind of know where, when you know where the river lets out, you kind of get right. why it's actually not Miranda meandering the way you thought it was. I think it's a really transgressive, great movie. Um, yeah, absolutely. Even though Bruce Lee's family apparently is very cross about his treatment in that. Um, yeah, and I like that Tarantino refused to do anything about it, even though it seems to have cost him enormously in China, which blocked the movie. Yeah. Because no one does that now. They always apologize or give in. Or they just self-censor and pre-edit and and write it beneficially for China in the first place so that they don't have to worry about it, you know, but that's a topic for another podcast. Um, you know, our, our enthralled them to China. Um, are you, um, are you not to go back to witty topics? Are you, you know, you, 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 you wear on your sleeve, your professed. And I think in some ways in, uh, inauthentic and, and exaggerated, uh, ignorance about foreign policy stuff but do you have a strong feeling about what's about to happen in afghanistan no because i'm not good at this and i'm genuinely not trying to be inauthentic i do think it's essentially intractable my my broad take on foreign policy is that the reason that the last three U.S. presidents have been completely incoherent on foreign policy is that the public is. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden's foreign policy is incoherent. Donald Trump's was incoherent. Barack Obama's was incoherent. All of them in some way flitted between we need to do stuff, we're going to bomb them, we're really important, and we need to get out and do nation building at home. And in fact, the last um, three, arguably, certainly the last two, with, with Trump and Obama were the Dove candidates. And you can't have that. I mean, you, you can try, but we either have to be in Afghanistan and do it properly or not be in Afghanistan. It's not something we can win and it's not something we can achieve with a small footprint. And so what we've done is we've decided to leave which is fine. That's a clear decision. And so now you're going to see the public 
giving a schizophrenic reaction to it, where on the one hand, they're really pleased and they don't want to go back. But on the other hand, they're probably going to hate what happens next. Mm -hmm. And the Biden administration is going to reflect that. Yeah, I just don't think there are any good options. I, I, I tell you what I do think, and again, this this comes from a position of not deep thought. Um, I think that history shows that most global hegemons have, in some way, to behave like empires, and America is ill suited to it. And China wouldn't be, and Britain wasn't. And that comes with real costs because in an imperial situation, we would just take over Afghanistan and yeah, it would be really tough and yeah, it's a graveyard, but we were at least propping up a government better than the one we're about to get. Yeah. I mean, I I disagree with that a little bit only in so far. I mean, I agree with you entirely about how the public is incoherent on foreign policy and therefore our politicians are incoherent on foreign policy. I just wouldn't limit it to foreign policy. I would include the Constitution, taxes, spending. You know, I mean, you can just go down a very long list of things. Sure. Uh, where um, the American people, I mean, this is one of the reasons I don't like concepts like nationalism is because there aren't any, any there's no such thing as the American people that think in concert about anything. And so when you try to treat them as if they have one Volksgemeinschaft or something like that, you invariably are misreading large swaths of the American people because we're a diverse people who are doing our own things in diverse communities and whatnot. And, and we're also schizophrenic personally in, in, in how we think about politics often. All that said, I think um, one of the reasons why we got into this hot mess was that we kept calling it America's longest war when it stopped being an actual war, I don't know, five, eight years ago and turned into a counterterrorism operation in one of many countries like one, like the sort we're doing in many countries, the actual combat deaths in Afghanistan had plummeted to, you know, tiny or not in the last, last year beforehand to nothing. And, but because the narrative of it being a war and lasting so long and all of that, um, was more uh, obtained more than the reality of it. Um, people like the idea of ending wars and they were tired of hearing about the story. And then you're right. We're going to have a fall of Saigon moment on the TV and people are, are going to beat the hell out of, out of Biden for letting it happen when they supported it, when they supported the decision and then they supported Trump's decision for it. And it's, it's just, it's sort of, a, and they wanted Obama to make the same decision, which he didn't because of that right. problem. I mean, I, I think, I think the difference, and this isn't a substantive objection to what you just said, but I think the difference is that foreign policy strikes me as more intractable purely because you can't avoid it. The description of the American public that you just offered is one I agree with. The solution to it is to leave most questions to the states. Mm -hmm. Agree entirely. So that we don't need to have taxation dealt with at the federal level and we don't need to have spending and we don't need to have energy and education and transportation and healthcare dealt with at the federal level we can allow a schizophrenic country to flourish in different areas of course foreign policy doesn't work like that you have to have a policy as a federal government that's why we have a federal government no that's right that's right and you because of that i think it's uniquely susceptible to that sort of um, undulation in sentiment and 
maybe that's one reason I find it so so baffling because I can't resolve it by saying, well, you know, Massachusetts works pretty well and so does Florida. Right, right. You have to say, what do we do? Right, right. <laughs> what do we do with the Pentagon? You can't have 50 Pentagon. Yeah. Um, although I've talked to some libertarians who might have an argument about that. But no, um, no, I think you're exactly right. It's sort of like my standard response about immigration policy for 20 years is when people ask me what my preferred policy was. And my answer always was to have one. You yeah, know, I mean, right. like, um, personally, I could handle a higher number of immigrants than, say, Rich could, you know, or that Ramesh would want. But their numbers were reasonable, you know, too. And I would rather have us say, you know, whatever the number is, 500,000 immigrants a year. But that means not 500,001, right? It means that's the number and that you can't break the law and you can't jump the line and, and, and enforce the law. Because what you get when you don't enforce the law is you get really divisive, gnarly, nasty politics, right. loss of faith and trust and, and all the rest. And, um, and I think you're right about, you know, it's a good point about foreign policy because you do need a one size fits all foreign policy. You don't need a one size fits all tax policy necessarily, or, or, you know, education policy or any of those kinds of things. It's just that everybody seems to want one size fits all policies these days, which is also depressing. So it's hugely depressing. And it's one reason why we're all so angry with each other. And the example I always give when I speak on college campuses is that video from Yale the night the Trump one, which went around the internet with all those people doing a primal scream in the quad. And I would say, yeah, okay, I'm a conservative. Did I find that funny and ridiculous? Sure, at one level. But the next day, I thought how sad it was because we really shouldn't be having that visceral a reaction to who is elected as the chief bureaucrat within the executive branch of the federal right. government. Right, no, exactly. Yeah, And that was really actually a, a signal of a, a deeper problem because you, know, you, you end up thinking, and this isn't unique to Trump. Yes, Trump was different. Yes, most of the criticisms of Trump were correct. But the reason people freak out so much when Congress changes hands or when the White House changes hands is because they think that it's going to affect them in a profound way. And it shouldn't, beyond a few carefully delineated areas. But as long as they keep asking for one-size-fits-all policies, they're going to be on the end of one-size-fits-all policies that they don't like. And it never seems to be the case that people work that out and then say, well, maybe I should try to limit my exposure. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's like your old country where... You know, the idea of having a Protestant on the throne seemed like the wheel of history was being thrown into reverse and for Catholics and f for Protestants, it felt like having a Catholic on the throne was uh, an assault on their very understanding of their own meaning. And presidents aren't that, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just, you know, I mean, that was dumb back then, but it was at least understandable given the historical context. Um, but like. You know, it was Ramesh, I think, who actually made the first argument that 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 presidents had be, back during the early Bush administration that presidents had become the chief avatar in the culture war, and that you know, right. the, and and that's just not not healthy. So, all right, my friend, um, I know I tried to move to light things, and then we just got into war and more depressing things, but such is the nature of these things. Um, lots of people want to hear you use an American accent. Um, that was like after the DeSantis stuff was the second most common request. Why? 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 Um, I think 
because it's a mixture of people like watching people embarrass themselves. Um, and there's also a certain kind of like, wow, that dog plays piano great for a dog, um, kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, uh, are you, are you willing to do it here? I mean, the only American accent that I have in my head is the old Disneyland one, which in my head sounds like this. Welcome to Disneyland, ladies and gentlemen. The train will be here momentarily. <laughs> That's not bad. I like that. No? You should go back okay. and watch the first airplane movie. Um, yeah. There's this fantastic, I, it's one of my favorite things in the whole movie, where the they have alternating male and female voices doing things like... Oh, so at the beginning. Yeah. At the beginning. No yeah. parking yeah. in you the won. white zone. And yeah. it boils down. And, so, and then the <laughs> woman says something, and then it boils down to... Don't give me any of this white zone garbage. You want me to have an abortion <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Um, anyway, that movie is just absolutely spectacular still. I agree. And I go on. I just, I, I think it appeals to dads in a way of, of right of, of a certain age though. So, but I agree. It's a great movie, but it, it, it killed me though recently because I watched two movies in short succession with Leslie Nielsen in them before he was that Leslie Nielsen, the Leslie Nielsen I grew up with. I think it was Return to the Forbidden Planet, uh-huh, uh-huh. which he's in as a serious character. And then, oh man, it's a, it's a Western uh, gunfight in Abilene. Nice. Uh-huh. I think. And he's in that. And he's a serious actor. Yeah. And he's not playing it hammy. But I can't see him as a serious actor because he's just so funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's sort of like, I never read the, was it not the importance of being earnest? Razor's Edge, one of those Oscar Wilde kind of things, and had to take a test on it. So me and a friend rented the movie that was Bill Murray's first attempt at doing a serious role, and it was awful. It was like like you know trying to drive with the emergency brake on. You just like screaming at the tv be funny you know like you get thought every single line was the lead up to a funny line and um it didn't help we didn't do well on the test either but no uh, <laughs> all right my friend thank you very much i gotta stop with these discursions um and uh um, hope to have you back soon yeah my pleasure all right so uh charlie has left the building um and uh um the the british euphony and mellifluousness of his, uh, his, his speaking style um, is somewhat hypnotic, um, even when he's talking about Florida, which I have to confess, I know a lot of, I, I, we spent a lot of time on it, in part because so many people said they wanted me to ask him about it. I suppose I should have done some more homework about how to ask tougher questions, but A, he's not Ron DeSantis's press secretary, which I think is pretty clear, and B, um, I personally just don't care that very much. I just want to be clear about this. I just, it's just not a huge, like, uh, like, like point scoring thing for me one way or the other about, you know, who's handling all of this stuff better. Um, I'm not entirely persuaded that, that the way DeSantis is doing this is the right way to do it. Um, and all that, but, and I, you know, I'm less enamored of his style and some people are, but I don't have any, I just didn't, you know, there's nothing that Charlie was saying that I you know, profoundly disagreed with that I wanted to get into a big argument about. 
And I, I could just tell from the emails and Twitter responses I've gotten from people that people were hoping that would happen. So I'm sorry if that disappointed you. Um, and, uh, other than that, not much more to announce. Um, I do get this stuff from people about how they wish they could share the, um, the members only newsletters and whatnot. Well, you know, you can't really do it on Facebook or Twitter in the sense of putting the whole thing up there or anything like that, or even the links. I mean, you can put the links, but people are not going to be able to read much of it. But if you have friends, you know, that you want to forward, if you get the emails and you want to forward them to people and say, Hey, look, you should read this. And by the way, maybe even say, this is one of the reasons why you subscribe. You should, you should subscribe to the dispatch. That would be great. We want you to do that. Word of mouth is really important. Um, and, um, you know, if you, if you like what we're doing, or if you only like what some of us are doing forward that stuff. Uh, but if you can, you know, if you can help proselytize for this, uh, this thing, um, I'd be eternally grateful. We recently did a, a, a survey, um, sort of a random sample. So most of you probably did not get the survey and the feedback we got was great. Um, and it was really encouraging. I know it, it, it bucked up me and Steve and we're really, um, you know, we, we promised to keep this stuff confidential so we can't really like divulge all of it, but it was, it was really encouraging and, and the, you know, the, the sort of the demographic and other, you know, sort of data was really, really interesting and we're still pouring all over that. Um, but you know, if those kinds of people who really like what we're doing and really support what we're doing, you know, we're not, we're not a charity, we're not a Patreon account or anything like that, but we are trying really hard to grow this into something, you know, great and enduring and spectacular. And if you can help in the salesmanship of that, um, you know, that would be wonderful. And, uh, anyway, I'll be around for some of next week and, um, there will be a, you know, a weekend ruminant coming. I haven't figured that part out yet. And, um, thanks again, everybody try to stay, uh, cool if you can. It's really, you know, terrible here in DC. And, um, I guess I'll just, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> Terrible, right? It's great. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.